The reading of the Scriptures from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, and I invite your reverent hearing, public reading of God's Word here in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many things uh, in life to be afraid of, much of it uh, natural, of course, uh, but uh, the most terrifying reality in life is uh, not uh, a surprise nuclear attack or uh, some terrorist that sneaks into Oklahoma City, does some incredibly uh, explosive event. Uh, The most terrifying reality in life, by the way, is not another virus. Uh, They're always going to be with us. But from this text, uh, we should learn that the greatest terrorizing event of life is the presence of the wrath of God. And the reason it is present is set forth in this text, and that is uh, 
the Gentiles are engaging in overt idolatry. And idolatry is the occasion of God's wrath to come and to visit uh, really all mankind. And certainly his wrath in rejecting, violating, and reprobating in terrible wrath uh, those who are idolaters. Uh, the, the text before us this morning begins a, a new section uh, in the book of Romans in which the Apostle Paul establishes the need for justification in the condemnation of the whole world. It's going to condemn all of humanity, all men, generically speaking. All are condemned, not escape. Children, boys, girls, all mankind are under God's condemnation. And that's going to be expressed in uh, beginning of, with verse 18 of the first chapter, uh, all the way down through the 20th verse of chapter 3. And the immediate reason for the condemnation is set forth here in the idolatry of the Gentiles. And the way that that idolatry breaks out in really self-worship, but has many ways in which it is expressed, but it's certainly uh, expressed in self-love. And so in verses 18 to 23, uh, the Gentiles uh, reject God for idols. And based on that rejection, God's going to come in terrifying wrath. And uh, the rest of the verses explain the outworking of that wrath. And so the wrath of God is present. We oftentimes think it's distant. Well, certainly it is distant uh, in a physical form, but the most terrifying aspect of it to me is its presence in a spiritual form in destroying people who reject God. And terrifying reality of that is in our text this morning. It's also a reason that Paul wants to come to Rome to proclaim the power of the gospel. If all men are under wrath, then the only way they can, they can be saved is the power of God, who alone can save. And therefore, relying on uh, last week's message from verses 16 and 17, the gospel it's the power of God to salvation. All men are under condemnation. How can they be saved? There's only one way, the power of God in the gospel. It takes divine power to rescue someone from the terrifying reality of the wrath of God that's present as we speak. And active the power, absent, pardon me, the power of God into salvation uh, this wrath is present, it's active, and again, it's terrifying, not to overuse the word. Uh, it, it's terrifying as God reprobates idolaters. And his reprobation is active and present, and it should terrify all mankind. Uh, that God has revealed his wrath is detailed in verse 24, 26, and 28 
which we will look at momentarily, but it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, evidenced in their suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, uh, illustrated in their rejection of natural revelation in the creation. Again, Paul here is going to state that the natural creation, uh, nature, if you will, testifies that there's a creator. And not only does God uh, testify that there's a creator in the creation, but he makes it evident to all men that he's the creator. Verse 19. Notice, notice the text. God made it evident to them. So he gives them the evidence that he's the creator. By the way, uh, when you share the gospel, you number one, you can't convince anyone <laughs> of their spiritual estate, but you don't have to argue that God is their creator because it is stamped on their souls. All men know that they are not here by time and chance. I know that's taught in our school system, but there's a greater teacher that teaches all men that they are creatures and he's the creator. It's a very powerful way, by the way, to witness to people, and that is to simply uh, rely upon what is self-evident to everyone, and that is that they are the creature and God is the creator. And they know it internally and they cannot escape it. It's stamped upon their souls that God owns them as their creator. But of course they deny it. And, uh, I'm not denying that, and neither is the Apostle Paul. Uh, they see it visibly every time they go into nature. And it testifies to them, and they comprehend it internally because God has made it evident to them. If you will, it is self-evident. You do not have to argue as self-evident truth. You simply have to proclaim it. And by the way, that's the power of the gospel. Verse 20. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, because God made it evident to them. And the result is, verse 20, they are without excuse. I love that phrase because I'm a man of many excuses. When it comes to standing before God, there are none. You can't argue, well, I had bad teachers. You cannot and will not be able to argue that you had evil parents or terrible things happened to you in the earthquake of whatever year. There's no excuse before God. By the way, the phrase there without excuse is a legal term. So there's a presumption that a court has met and proclaimed that all men are without excuse and therefore under condemnation. Their position, God is saying, is indefensible. I don't know if you've ever been to court, um, but typically uh, people go to court because uh, 
someone has some kind of case to be argued and uh, before a judge. But before you can ever get to the judge, you have to show the judge that there has been proper service on your adversary. You can't just walk in and say, Your Honor, uh, this person is guilty. Um, here's uh, my proof, and therefore say that they're guilty and make it so. No, the judge is going to say, uh, is there proper service? Um, when I used to go to small claims court to uh, try to collect um, money that was owed me while I was in business, uh, I generally went and I hired the sheriff to go make service. Cost a little extra money, but I just found that there's something compelling about a guy walking into an office or knocking on a door that has a gun strapped to his side, rendering the court that this person is serving you and he's going to go to court and you need to show up in court. Now again, I understand that small claims court and it gets much more complicated the farther up you go till even you get to the Supreme Court of the United States. But what God is telling us through the words of the Apostle Paul is that God has rendered effective service to all mankind. And the service is nature. And he has served them that he is the creator and that they are guilty and without excuse. Uh, that's one of the reasons you don't have to argue anyone into the gospel. Number one, you can't. But the second reason, it's self-evident to them because God has rendered service upon their souls. Uh, I don't need to hire the sheriff or a process server uh, to... Uh, serve my neighbor that they need to hear the gospel. It's self-evident to them by virtue of the fact that they are the creatures and God is the creator. Uh, and part of the reality of this text is that the heavenly court has sentenced them already without excuse. Uh, and the heavenly court is going to exact present penalty. There is a future penalty, I understand that, the day of Christ. But there's a present penalty in heaven's court. Now I want to make a distinction. Um, we live in a country of many courts, civil, criminal, small claims. I presume there are others that I'm unaware of. States have a Supreme Court. The federal government has a Supreme Court. I am not speaking from this text from any civil court whatsoever. I'm speaking of heaven's court. The greatest court of all the land has sentenced all mankind. Uh, you can disregard his sentence. You may say, perhaps, uh, uh, God, I only pay attention to uh, civil court, and the civil court gives me freedom of religion and freedom to reject you, and freedom to live my life however I want to live it, uh, even if I want to be in open rebellion. I grant you that. In our country, you have freedom of religion. But God didn't sign the Declaration of Independence. The First Amendment is of no concern to him. I'm profoundly glad we have it so that we can worship God this morning in freedom. 
But God doesn't keep the First Amendment. I'm not speaking of civil court. I'm speaking of the greatest court in all of the world. Heaven's court has served and sentenced all mankind. And I'm going to describe the sentence to you in the following text. Although knowing God, they did not honor or give Him thanks. And so they reject God. And because they reject God, there is present wrath that's going to transform all mankind. Because their rejection, verse 21, makes them vain, empty, and foolish. And so they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was hardened. In the rejection of God, the sentence is immediate. It's immediately executed. They've already been sentenced and served, and now the sentence is being executed. Their hearts are darkened and hardened. And they become vain in their speculations. By the way, I think this is an allusion to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter uh, 2 in verse 5. The language is uh, very parallel. Listen to the words of the Old Testament prophet that applies today. They went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. When you reject God and walk after emptiness, you're going to become empty. Your soul is empty. Very interesting, this is explained, by the way, in graphic imagery of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. Listen to the word of the prophet. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Think of the imagery there. Ancient Near East. Some of it desert imagery where water is critically important for life. Just as it is important for life in our own country, in our own state and city. If you don't have access to water, you're going to die. That's a self-evident truth. What God is saying to the nation, because you have rejected me, I have broken your cisterns and you are leaking water, the water of life. It's an act of judgment. I will tell you that all men and women outside of Jesus Christ in that imagery have leaky lives. They are leaking everything. They're leaking purpose and meaning and joy. The things that are essential to life, they're leaking it all. Some of the angriest days of my life is when I get out and I pull my car out and I find oil leaks on my driveway. Or maybe it's radiator fluid or transmission fluid because I know I have a problem and I know that I cannot deny that problem. I cannot say, well, so what my car is leaking oil, it'll get over it and heal itself. Life doesn't work that way. That car needs help immediately. Because running an automobile on dirty and bad oil creates many, many problems. 
And so does trying to run your life absent the life-giving force of the Creator in Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and your life is leaking, I know that it is. The Scripture testifies that it is. You need to flee to the Savior who alone can fix, who alone can preserve and restore and make right. Furthermore, in verse 21, their inner faculties of reasoning and thought are darkened so that they lose a sense of morality. That's the point if you look at verse 21. They become futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. When you have a darkened heart, you lose your way in life. The heart is a reference to the uh, inner life of man whereby we process information whereby we reason, and whereby we have a soul. And if that's darkened, uh, we lose the essentials of life, and namely knowing God through His Son, Jesus Christ. I liken it to a map. Uh, very common in most automobiles today that people have access to um, GPS systems that tell them where they are and where they're to go. Part of judgment is that God destroys that ability in the human soul. Now, I'm not telling you your soul has a GPS system, but it, it is a soul that tells you what you are under and where you should go. When you reject God for idols, uh, He destroys that. Illustration of this in my own life, uh, Couple, couple weeks ago, Sunday night, I'm lost to the four winds. The phone rings. My lovely wife answers it. I know immediately it's my son. Every alarm bell's going off in my life. I mean, oh my, what, what's this about? What had happened, he was driving back from his brother's home in Fort Worth and uh, encounters one of those typical, incredible gully washers of rain in Texas and Oklahoma where you can barely see anything. The rain is so violent. And his GPS system had gone down. He didn't know where he was. In other words, he was lost. It's a terrifying thing to learn that you're lost in the midst of a storm. If you don't know Christ, you're lost in the midst of a storm. But my son knows that his mother can bail him out. And she goes into her room and pulls out a map of Fort Worth and figures out exactly where he is. And knowing where he is, she gets him home. Absent GPS. Absent my son having a map. My wife had a map. You want to figure out your way in life, you need a map. God gives it in the Scriptures. Absent that map, you are in a terrible storm lost, and you don't even know it. And judgment has you by the throat. And you probably don't even know that if you do not know his son. Thankfully, my son made it home. 
And so it is with us who know the Savior. He has given us an internal map and a written map by which we follow Him and pursue Him. As well, the Gentiles profess to be wise, but they become foolish. Notice in verse verses 20 and 21, I want to point this out to you again, their foolish heart was darkened. Uh, that's, by the way, uh, in the Greek text, that's in the passive voice. In the passive voice, you're being acted upon. It's just as the word sounds, passive. But there's a force acting upon you. Implicit in the text is God is darkening their hearts in present terrifying wrath because they've rejected Him. The passive voice is again in verse 22, they became fools. It means that their rejection of natural revelation has unleashed divine forces of terrifying wrath against them and they're not even aware of it. If you will, their epistemology is turned upside down. Epistemology from the Greek verb to know. In other words, they cannot know. Their ability to know has been lost in present judgment. The idolatry becomes explicit. Much of what I've been saying is implicit idolatry, but now it's going to become explicit in verse 23. Notice the text. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image, that's the idolatry. They worship an image instead of the glory of the incorruptible God in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They exchange the glory of God. And again, the judgment is now beginning to intensify because when you exchange the glory of God for a man who has no glory in terms of the heavenly realm, God is present in terrifying wrath. Uh, I believe this as well is uh, an allusion to the Old Testament. Psalm 106, verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. They exchanged the glory of God for a molten image. Verse 20, Psalm 106, Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. That theology is now being explicitly brought into the Old Testament, pardon me, New Testament, Romans chapter 1. By the way, there's a beautiful picture of that, terrifying picture of that, Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, wakes up and says, Golly, I'm good. See all this kingdom out there? I made it all. I did it all. And I did it my way. God comes and says, you don't glorify me. He turns him into a cow that's probably relying upon echoes from Psalm 106. You want to be like a creature? I'll make you like one. And Nebuchadnezzar goes like a cow into the field and eats grass faces nature all by his lonesome until God comes to rescue him, not in salvation, but simply restore him. And in the restoration, Nebuchadnezzar says, God, you're God. 
You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not the confession of a monotheist, but a henotheist, because Nebuchadnezzar believed in many gods. He's just saying, Daniel, your God is at the top of the order. Well, that's not the way it works either. Our God's not just at the top of the order. There's no order under him. He is all in all, the only God. And you reject that for idols, a molten calf or whatever. God has come. Terrifying wrath. You, you change who God is. He's going to change you. And He has. He's darkened their hearts in a powerful way of present judgment. Uh, of course, it's all an allusion here to the golden calf incident of uh, Exodus 32, 4-6. Again, the splendor and majesty of the one true God is cashiered for images. Um, Hosea chapter 4, verse 7, the more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me, and I will change their glory into shame. That's the present judgment, glory to shame. Um, also, I, as well, I think more terrifying, there's a conceptual allusion to uh, Genesis 1 through 3. Um, Adam says, I like the serpent more than the creator. I'll follow the serpent rather than the Creator. And Adam is judged and cast out of the garden. Immediate judgment for Adam. And the way is barred for him back into the Garden of Eden. And so the idolatry causes God to act in immediate judgment, verses 24 to 32. Uh, the inversion or irony is that God is going to make them like the idols that they serve. And so God rejects them. God says, you want to change me? I'm going to change you. And he does. The judgment is expressed in God giving them over. Notice verse 24, 26, and 28. Therefore, God gave them over. 26, for this reason, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. God is actively intensifying or reprobating them in his terrifying wrath and destroying them spiritually. I want to stress this because this is not God permitting them or God being passive. Rather, God is changing them. That he will use sin to punish sin. It's judicial. I understand that. It's judicial. Because they changed him for the glory of a creature. First, God gave them over to their lusts and sexual uncleanness resulting in their bodies being uh, dishonored. Uh, by the way, there's a conceptual allusion here that I think is very profound to the uh, act of idolatry in the history of the nation of Israel. Exodus 32. So they, uh, they build an altar and, uh, they have a molten uh, cow to worship, uh, Exodus 32.6, so the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and to rose up to play. The latter is probably a sexual nuance. Because they dishonored God, God's going to come and dishonor them and turn them into shame. Again, they think it's very cool and progressive, uh, when in fact God is destroying them. 
The inversion in verse 25 is that they change the truth about God as creator for a lie. And, and notice the religiosity of it. They worshiped and served the creature. And both of these are explicit references to idolatry. Uh, by the way, all men are religious. The point is, who do you worship? If you worship anyone but the one true God, God has already come in destructive power and terrifying wrath. Part of my uh, reminder is all the biology classes I took in college and high school. Evolution. We came from animals. And isn't it interesting? It's almost as if God has turned us in to animals. It's incredible. The irony of the inversion. God's saying, oh, you want to you wanna worship the creatures? I'm going to make you just like them. Second, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful passions. And these are defined in verses 26 and 27 of lesbianism and homosexuality. It's evidence of God's terrifying wrath. Again, I remind you, this has nothing to do with civil court or the First Amendment that gives all men the freedom to worship whatever God they want to worship. This is the divine court that is speaking of judgment and present wrath. Don't confuse the court systems. Uh, the root of their sexual sin is idolatry or self-worship. If you will, self-defining one's sexuality in contrast to one's genetic code at birth. We are the creature. God gives us a genetic code. He gives us a pair of chromosomes. Depending on what those are, defines your sexuality. You change that. You've engaged in an act of idolatry. And God comes in terrifying judgment and intensifies it. Same thing with the transgender issue. It's almost as if men and women are saying, God, I don't like how you made me. And so God says, okay, I'm going to make you over in the likeness that you want in my wrath. And they have and they do and they will as expressions of God's terrifying wrath. The creature does not get to define who and what they are. And if you reject what God has done, you're engaging in idolatry. And idolaters are judged. So people become like the gods that they serve, and God makes them over into the spiritual likeness of the gods they serve. It is ever-present in our culture. You cannot escape it. Ever-present pornography. It's on the radio. It's on television. It's almost as in every magazine that you look at. The visual bombardment of sexuality in our culture is an act of judgment. It's an also an act of self-worship. And God comes in wrath. You change God, he's going to change you. And he's going to win the battle. We've become like crazed animals in heat. It's an expression of that wrath. 
Some of you know that uh, I'm an occasional hunter. Not a very good one, I'll admit. But in one of the turkey seasons, and certainly in deer season, it um, re revolves around uh, the estrus cycle of the female deer turkey. And in that cycle, the male does stupid. And when they do stupid, hunters win the battle. That's really much of the success of many hunts. Not always. I understand there are some people that do it a little bit differently, but uh, it is not without educational experience. The Oklahoma Department of Wildlife sets deer season and part of turkey season around that cycle because they want deer and turkey to be taken and when the animals do stupid, hunters often win. It's a moral reminder that we live in a moral universe. The animals should teach us, but sadly, we become like the animals. To our detriment, it's an expression of God's terrifying wrath. And the killing in our culture is metaphorical for a spiritual rot. I don't speak of the killing as literal. Just a incredible spiritual rot. Like the imagery of the prophet Jeremiah, our cisterns are broken and we are leaking terribly. It's anything but enlightenment. I love it in our culture where educators say we're progressive and we're enlightening. No, they're probably elements of the wrath of God. It's the presence of judgment. And when one mars and he faces the image of God, he comes in wrath. It's a Faustian bargain of terrifying proportions to say, God, I don't like what you made of me. And so he comes and makes one over in the likeness of the image of the images that they worship and serve. Third, verse 28, God gave them over to depraved mind. And so the intellect is changed as a result of retribution. The essential here is that the mind and nature determines our actions and nature and willingness in the spiritual realm that's been marred and effaced and destroyed as an act of judgment. Now we are twisted and bent. And there follows the longest vice list in all of the New Testament. As we chase all these temporal images and worship and serve them rather than the Creator. There's only one way to escape this terrifying wrath. That's the grace and the power of God and the Gospel. Though under wrath, God came for us. He has and He will change us. Look at the text again, if you would. Romans chapter 1, verse 23. The verb in verse 23, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God, is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. 
when Paul says we shall be changed. While men under condemnation try to change God, but God in marvelous grace changes us and will change us when he comes for us and for his church. They exchange the glory of God, but God changes us for glory and puts it in our hearts to pursue and chase, chase him. That's grace. That's escaping judgment. It's very interesting to me that uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul uses the future passive we shall be changed. God's going to act upon us. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be glorified because God changed us in the day that we came to the Savior and forsook the idolatry of the present evil age. You want glory? Be careful where you get it and from whom it comes. And at some point, Scrap your trophy cage for the only glory that really matters. An eternal glory that alone comes from God. We shall be changed. The direct object, very interesting in verse 23. Look at the text again. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. The word image. That's true of the Christian Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we shall be changed because we are predestined to be conformed to the, to the image of his son. Profound inversion. The whole world is chasing images. God takes us as his son and is going to make us over into the image of his one eternal, all glorious son. You want glory. You get it in the son the Son of God, who gave his life a ransom the one for the many. To be changed over into his image is the greatest inversion of grace in all of life. The power of God in the gospel. I love the text in 1 Corinthians 15, 49. And we shall bear the image of the heavenly. Image of the heavenly. Future tense, speaking to absolute certainty because God is the one acting upon us. The whole world is bearing the image of the worldly. The world is under judgment and wrath. Flee it to the Savior who will change you into the image of the heavenly glories of everlasting life in the presence of God. As well, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we are being transformed into the image of glory. The whole world wants glory. We have it in the Savior, and he will make us over and change us forever. Incredible inversion. God comes for the whole world that's condemned, but he rescues his own and changes them. The whole rest of the world is trying to change God. It's the path to eternal judgment and wrath. God in grace comes for us and changes us into the heavenly glory. Incredible power of the gospel and the sovereign grace of God. Lastly, uh, the verb in uh, verse 23 
exchange the glory, a compound form of that verb is used in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10. Reconcile to God or change from enmity to friendship. And so I remind you, ladies and gentlemen, are you trying to change God? Or is He changing you? Two courses in life. One is the course of terrifying present wrath. The other, to the most beautiful, glorious presence of all of life. The presence of God in eternal glory. The lost try to change God. He changes us in sovereign power and grace. And thank God that He has and will complete the work that He has begun in our hearts.